Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Historians have long written about inflection points in history. In American history, events surrounding the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Civil War and Reconstruction, the Industrial Revolution, the Great Depression, and World War II are all such points. It's arguable that we may very well be living through one right now. But clearly the last great historical inflection point came exactly 50 years ago and reached its apogee in the year of 1968. Lyndon Johnson was president, and a series of events led us to believe that Yates was right, that the center could not hold, and that mere anarchy was loosed upon the world. The Tet Offensive, the King and Kennedy assassinations, the Prague Spring, the Democratic Convention in Chicago, Lyndon Johnson's decision not to seek re-election, and the election of Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew capped quite a year. Sidney Shanberg, the great reporter, once told me in an interview that he thought Vietnam in the 60s represented the end of consensus politics in America. As such, it also represented the end of what politicians like Lyndon Johnson were trying to do. We're going to talk about Lyndon Johnson today with my guest, Kyle Longley. He's the Snell Family Dean's Distinguished Professor of History at Arizona State University, and he's the author of the new book, LBJ's 1968, Power, Politics, and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. Kyle Longley, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for the invitation. It's great to have you here. One thing about looking at the totality of 1968, and I really just hit a few of the key points in that list, is that it really puts our current events, as dramatic as they are, as busy as they are, it really puts them in a profound perspective. That is definitely so. And I make that argument strongly in the book that 1968, as you know, is an inflection point. It's where it appears the country is just coming apart. And, you know, Johnson would refer to it as a year of a continuous nightmare. And I think that really stands out. But the other part of it being an inflection point, and your entry, uh, introduction pointed this out, there's a lot that resonates today. And we're seeing it still continue to play out. What The influence of 1968 is definitely in place today, and we're seeing a lot of the things, again, just resonate. It's not only just the influence of 1968, it's, it's in many ways, and this is what, what comes across to me strongly, is it's the continuation of 1968. All of those issues have never been settled. Uh, that is fundamentally... Uh, my argument in the book, it, a lot of this is, again, just resonating today. And I'll, I'll just give you a couple of examples. The one that most people don't know about but stands out directly is the Fortis nomination, where uh, Johnson tried to uh, put Abe Fortis's, uh into the chief justice position and bring in another one named Homer Thornberry. And the argument the Republicans are going to adapt on the uh, defeating Fortis is the president being a lame duck president should not have the right uh, to name the next Supreme Court justice, and that should be left to the next president. And if that doesn't resonate with people today over Gilbert Merritt, and uh, I don't know what will. To what extent did Johnson, although he was so caught up in all of this, to what extent did he? do you think he had a historical perspective with, with regard to how much was happening and what it might mean historically? I don't know if he really consciously had that, but what I do think he did have an understanding was of the historical legacies that are going to shape his responses. And, you know, to take the best one, I think, in this case is Czechoslovakia in 1968 in August when the Warsaw Pact invades. 
Uh, and there's really not much Johnson can do, but what he is using as his reference point is how the Eisenhower administration handled Hungary in 1956, where they gave them signals that we were going to come to their support. And Johnson says, and he remembers this very vividly, how they got crushed, and he says, no, we're not going to do that. And he remembered the historical lessons. Maybe that's the difference between understanding the larger sense of what's going on. He did have historical lessons that he applied that year. The other thing that's so remarkable is that the two, I, I would argue, the two most central figures to 1968, Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy, hated each other. Oh, very much so. And, you know, I just wrote an opinion piece that's going to be out in the Washington Post in the next couple of weeks, talking about how this really ties even to today. They hated each other. I mean, it was so bad. And if you remember the story in the book of Johnson and Kennedy's last meeting was in the White House where Kennedy is trying to ascertain what Johnson is going to do as far as who he's going to support, how much he's going to support after the March 31st speech in the presidential race or the Democratic primary. And Johnson goes afterwards and says, bring me the tape of the uh, and the transcript of the tape. There is no tape because Bobby Kennedy did not trust him and it brought a scrambler to the meeting. So this animosity is deep-seated, and it is a rivalry to a large degree that defines that decade. But what I argue in this new piece is Johnson put aside his political differences and personal differences and went out of his way to help the Kennedy family deal with the loss of Bobby Kennedy. And now that's a good lesson that our current president could learn vis-a-vis John McCain. Well, it's interesting, too, that, that you get the sense that Johnson didn't hate the Kennedys. He didn't hate the family. He just hated Bobby. Uh, that is very much the case. I mean, there's a level to it because Johnson always felt like the Kennedys looked down on him, as well as the people around him, the Schlesingers and the Goodwins and people like that close to him looked down on him because he was some hick from Texas. But boy, when it came down to it, he, he really respected John and he appreciated what John had done for him, but he hated Bobby. And Bobby created a lot of that animosity by his actions towards mm-hmm. um, LBJ throughout their relationship. Not to say it wasn't reciprocated, but Bobby went out of his way starting in 1960 to try to marginalize Lyndon Johnson, and ultimately Lyndon Johnson gained the upper hand, and then Bobby resented that. Talk a little bit about the speech, the March 31st speech, and his decision not to run, and, and a little bit about the context of that. And one of the other things that, that's remarkable is that there was so much year left in 1968, even after that speech. Well, the two things that I argue in the book very strongly is Johnson had this in his back pocket for a while. When he went to get the State of the Union in January, he actually had a section of the uh, State of the Union where he was going to withdraw at that point. So this is uh, not, as some argue, that Bobby Kennedy entered a race and Johnson got scared and pulled out. No, it hadn't. I think, if anything, it, uh, Kennedy, he would really enjoyed that primary fight. But what it does, the two things I argue are Johnson pulls out because he's worried about his health. He'd had a massive coronary in 1955. And he is worried that he's going to die in the White House or worse, have a stroke like Woodrow Wilson and end up incapacitated. The second part of it is Vietnam is wearing on him so much. Tet has just added another layer to it. And now that his two son-in-laws are going to Vietnam, he just reaches the conclusion, i got to clean this mess up. And I want to devote the last part of my presidency to trying to get the United States out of Vietnam. To what extent... Did that decision, when he finally made it, after he gave the March 31st speech, 
To what extent did that impact policy? If Johnson had stayed in the race, would his decisions and would the policy have been the same or different? I th- I think it would have been different. I think I do think he would have continued to try to seek a way out of Vietnam. I think he was truly committed to that. He had announced his San Antonio formula in August of 1967. He was trying to get the North Vietnamese to the peace table, as well as the Viet Cong. And Tet definitely gives them some incentive because they get their clocks cleaned. And they have some, Hanoi has some incentive to come to the peace table. So I don't think it would have changed that much, but it definitely would have changed the conditions of like the Fortis nomination. They couldn't argue that he was a lame duck president. So that, that, you know, it would have moved things along in a different way. I think he would have continued to try to push his policies uh, more so in terms of domestic policy. But unfortunately, in 1966, Congress changed to a much more conservative Congress when the Democrats lost 47 seats. And it changed the dynamic. So he was really going uphill uh, in an uphill battle against Southern conservative Democrats and uh, Mountain West, uh, Western Republicans. How did the King assassination play with LBJ? You know, I wrote a good piece uh, recently on this matter, and it, it was in Newsweek, and I talked about the whole idea of how Johnson showed interesting amount of empathy toward the African Americans who were out in the streets uh, protesting. He does this privately. He doesn't say it publicly, but he's saying, you know, I understand why these young men feel like their leaders are being picked off one at a time and why they're angry. And he orders when the federal troops go in, he makes sure into Chicago, into D.C., into Baltimore, he makes sure the commanders understand, I don't want a bloodbath. We're going to get in, we're going to quell this, and we're going to get out. And I don't want you using this as a chance or your green troops using this as a chance for a massacre and turning this into something much worse than it could be. So he does show a remarkable, as you read again behind the scenes, a remarkable amount of empathy as he tries to basically comfort the nation. And then he tries to push through the, of course, 1968 civil rights legislation, which is a major victory for fair housing. And yet he's undercut once again by the power of Bobby Kennedy's speech in Indianapolis. Yes, it is definitely there. But when it comes down to it, Bobby Kennedy gives a, a great speech. Lyndon Johnson actually has actions that make a difference. Talk a little bit about foreign policy outside of Vietnam and, and Johnson's focus on what else was going on in the world. We mentioned the Prague Spring before. To what extent was there enough bandwidth that Johnson would have to deal with some of these other issues beyond Vietnam? Well, well, that's a great question, and the Czech, uh, the Prague Spring and the crushing of the Prague Spring is directly related to one of the things that he wanted to achieve most, and that was more nuclear disarmament with the Soviet Union. He had a planned uh, summit to go to uh, St. Petersburg or Leningrad uh, in the, uh, October of 1968, but unfortunately, when the uh, Russians crushed the Czechoslovakians, he had to pull out of that. So he does have that. But, you know, I make the central argument. Vietnam is the arsenic that is just taking the blood and sweat and tears of the country and the president. And, of course, it's of his own creation to a large degree. But he wants desperately to try to rescue his legacy. But Vietnam undercuts him all the way across the board, including 
efforts to, you know, uh, in Chicago in 1968. And you make the point repeatedly, I think, that Johnson knew better, that he knew this was a no-win situation. He definitely understood that. And if he'd had his way, he would have never fought the war. Uh, he would have, as he always said, that bitch of a war on the other side of the world distracted me from my one true love, and that's the great society. And, but, you know, he didn't want to be the first president to lose uh, a war, and he also couldn't admit to a mistake. And George Reedy's, I've got a great quote from George Reedy, said, this was a man, just like many people in power, that cannot admit mistakes. And he would not move off of that. And you see the schizophrenia on Vietnam throughout his presidency, but ultimately it's what drags him down. Why was he so passive with respect to what he knew Nixon was doing behind the scenes? Well, I don't think he was passive, much less, because, I mean, for example, he gave the information on the Chenault affair over to Hubert Humphrey, and Hubert Humphrey also chose not to use it. What I think is at play here, and what I argue in the chapter on Chenault, is two things were at play. One is... Uh, he was afraid of creating a constitutional crisis because everyone, for the most part, thought Richard Nixon was going to win, even though the polls were tightening and we know it was a very close race. The other part of it was he would have to give up where he got his sources, wiretapping American citizens, wiretapping our uh, allies uh, in uh, Saigon, as well as the South Vietnamese embassy in the United States. And I think those two things play out. Uh, and he w- didn't want the creation of this constitutional crisis, but look what it brought about. Because the Chenault affair didn't lay the groundwork later for Watergate. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about Johnson's reaction. And, and I think this is really underreported. Johnson's reaction to what he saw taking place during the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Well, I think that's one of the more powerful chapters in the book. Mm-hmm of how he played such a substantial role behind the scenes in the uh, process. And unfortunately, it undermined Hubert Humphrey, I think, to a large degree, uh, both as selection of sites, which put it in the worst possible place in the country for the Democrats, and that was Chicago with Richard Daley and his police force ready for a confrontation with those anti-war protesters. Humphrey wanted it in Miami, far away, making it more difficult for the protesters to get there. Uh, and then I think the most important part is where Hubert Humphrey had fashioned a, uh, a compromise plank on Vietnam with the Kennedy people and with the uh, McCarthy people, uh, the supporters, and Johnson undermined that. And it led to turmoil on the floor, which we all remember. Well, I, I was only five, but you know I've seen the scenes of what happened on the floor of the Democratic National Convention, and we know what happened outside. And Johnson, there's a scene where he thinks actually the Democratic Party might call him and ask him to come rescue them. And he was going to fly up to uh, Chicago on his birthday that Tuesday before the nomination. And he's sitting at the ranch in Texas waiting for the phone call that never comes. And it's one of the saddest moments in his presidency. And as I tell the story, you'll, you know, it really just hits you strongly. Why didn't they do the, move the convention to Miami? Why didn't they have it in Miami? Well, Johnson had a strong tie to Richard Daley. And the Republicans had already just come out of Miami. 
which would have made more sense because the press right. was already there. And again, you know, these anti-war protesters are coming out of the Midwest or the West Coast would have had a much more difficult time getting to Miami uh, than they did Chicago. But Johnson was committed to this, and he pulled the strings behind because Humphrey wanted Miami. He also wanted Edmund Muskie as the campaign, uh, you know, the convention manager, and Johnson undercut that. So it was Johnson unable to su- uh, surrender control of the Democratic Party to Hubert Humphrey, who he had a very interesting relationship with. Was that personal, or was it that Johnson, because of all that was going on and all that he, all the pain that he was really going through from all of this, had sort of lost his political mojo? I think it's a combination of both. I think it's partly personal. He still wants the control, uh, and it, not just Johnson, but the people around him uh, in some ways. But it's also, yeah, it is the confusion. It is, you know, not believing that, you know, who would envision Chicago uh, blowing up in the way that it did? We'd never seen anything quite like that in the modern American history of a convention just digressing into basically anarchy. Talk a little bit about the human side of Lyndon Johnson. Before we uh, started our our on-air conversation, I mentioned to you how powerful the picture on the cover of this book is, and and that really reflects the sort of humanity of Lyndon Johnson. Right. Well, the the picture is just classic. Uh, It's it's a picture of Lyndon Johnson listening to a tape recording from his son-in-law, Chuck Robb, who is a Marine lieutenant, and he's talking about how he lost some men in combat uh, there in Vietnam, and the stress and the strain that he's just, you know, his head's down on the table, and you, you just see what this year is doing to him, and this is in the summer of 1968. And then in the, the foreground, or in the background, is John Kennedy's bust, and it's that ghost that just sort of lingers over Lyndon Johnson throughout his presidency, and then the haunting just continues with Robert Kennedy. And there is a humanity to him, and this is one of the things my editor of my book pointed out, is this book probably portrays Johnson in a more humane manner, that he had a private side that oftentimes we fail to see because we fall victim to wanting to understand the caricature that was Lyndon Johnson. Talk about the influence that, that Lady Bird had. Well, she is definitely sort of his rock. Uh, stabilizing force. I mean, he's got some really good people around him. Harry McPherson, uh, Joe Califano. There's some really good advisors, Clark Clifford. Um, and then he has some on the fringes like uh, Walt Rostow. Uh, but he really has a solid, but Lady Bird is the one that he always comes back to. And the greatest source for this book, I still think, was Lady Bird's diaries from the White House. And if you ever get a chance to look at those, those are remarkable. And she would tape them every night and then have them transcribed. But you see the strength of character that she has and how she helps him hold it together. And she is sort of his conscience to a degree. And as always, when he's off on this frenetic pace or something like that, she brings him back. Come back to this idea of the people that surrounded Johnson. Because, you know, we we always hear, and, and so much has been written about those that surrounded Jack Kennedy, the best and the brightest. But this was a pretty uh, a pretty talented group of people. Oh, very talented. Again, they were young. Uh, they are very vibrant. I mean, by 68, Robert McNamara's out. Dean Rusk is still in Secretary of State, and he's still a strong 
component of the administration, but there's been a lot of change. And a lot of these are young people he brought up from Texas. Again, McPherson, Tom Johnson, who later goes on the lead, the Los Angeles Times and CNN, uh, Larry Temple, his legal counsel. These are people that really are very strong. They're able to help him negotiate these crisis after crisis after crisis. And, you know, at the top, Johnson's providing the leadership, but they're providing a lot of support. Cyrus Vance is sort of his go-to person on anything that's a crisis. And so, like I say, they're a best and the brightest. They may not get the credit that Schlesinger and others have done for themselves, uh, but they are a good group, and again, especially in 1968. Yeah, I mean, even people like Califano and Bill Moyers and yep. some of the other people around him. Califano is definitely a important voice. And you read his works, and you get how strongly you know this was intertwined. So again, I think as far as the people around him, again, there is a best and brightest to them. They don't have the academic credentials, maybe uh, that the uh, you know Halberstam writes about with the Kennedy people, but they also aren't encountering many of the challenges that Johnson does uh, in this tumultuous year. How did he think he'd get out of Vietnam? How did he expect that to end? You know, it, it depends on what time. You know, 65, it's a definitely different Johnson than it is in 68. 68, he knows he's going to have to negotiate his way out. And I think Cronkite and others sort of just lay the tone. But, you, you know, this had been an ongoing process. J. William Fulbright and Senate Foreign Relations Committee had been a thorn in the side of LBJ's original policies towards Vietnam. And you're seeing more and more people push him that way. And by even the wise men who, in March of uh, 1968, uh, really just lay it out for him. We've got to seek a negotiated settlement. We've got to get out. We've got to try to Vietnamize the war, and we've got to let them settle this. And so I think that was his ultimate hope, uh, you know, but strongly making sure there was a strong South Vietnam in place before we withdrew. And what was his relationship with the generals, with the Pentagon? Well, the chapter on Tet, I think, really highlights this, and that is how the JCS, especially uh, Earl Wheeler, tried to manipulate the Tet Offensive to get 206,000 more troops, and how Johnson finally puts his foot down and says, no, you know, I'll give you 30,000, but that's it, and we're going to try to move in a different direction. And he uh, pushes aside Westmoreland, puts in Creighton Abrams, so, you know, it's a very, it's always been a song and dance between the president and uh, his generals. And it also, McNamara is involved in this, Clark Clifford is involved in this, the new Secretary of Defense. And they, Clifford comes in a hawk, but within a few months becomes one of the leading doves and pushing the president toward uh, the negotiated settlement and the withdrawal of U.S. troops. What surprised you the most to learn about Johnson in the course of reporting this book? I think it is the humanity of him. When you read uh, Caro, you read some of the other biographies of Johnson, you develop caricatures that he's crass, he's overbearing, he's a bully, and there's truth to that. But I also think they miss a lot of times the human side to him, the grandfather that is, as he's making huge decisions, is playing with his grandson, Lynn, uh, or, again, when he's going to the funeral for Bobby Kennedy at Arlington, he's crying. And you never see that in uh, the public realm, that this is a man who is torn apart by what is going on to his beloved country, as well as the office of the president. And that, to me, probably was the most surprising aspect that has really not been developed over time. 
How much of that was Johnson seeing what was happening to his presidency, that this was a guy that had always dreamed of being president, and finally, because of circumstances, he has the opportunity, and he sees it falling to dust around him? That is, the you know, like I say, that one scene, I talk about that Tuesday of his birthday, 60th birthday, where he is expecting to be called and asked to come to Chicago. That scene, uh, that afternoon when he realizes they're not going to ask him and that he is no longer the leader of the party, that to me sort of symbolizes the whole year and the recognition that, you know, it's over. And finally over, and there's not going to be a change. Kyle Longley, the book is LBJ's 1968, Power, Politics, and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. Kyle, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity.